We're joined with Andres Bernal, the Professor of Public Policy and Advisor to the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Campaign and Administration. Thank you very much for joining us, Andres. Happy to be here. Andres, you've travelled a very long way to be here. What were you hoping to experience or be a part of by coming all the way to Adelaide? Um, you know, what were you hoping to bring to the experience and gain from the experience of being here this weekend? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, I think for me, it's just so important given the uh, international level of the challenges that we face to be learning from one another's different experiences in different parts of the world and see how uh, different visions for a sustainable and just society are being articulated and the, the chance to get to be a part of that here in Australia, which uh, I have never been to before, was quite appealing. So, What have you sort of noticed from day one and a bit so far that is perhaps a different perspective that we have here in Australia? Has anything stuck out? Because, of course, we went into neoliberalism a very different way. You, know, you got neoliberalism under the Republicans. We got neoliberalism under the left, which I think makes us pretty much unique in the developed world, that you know, it was the party representing sort of the working class that implemented neoliberal reform? Well, I think, interestingly enough, it was the the Democrats in the United States that doubled down on neoliberalism. Yeah, under Clinton. And it didn't get solidified until they they took power in the 90s under Clinton and and even Barack Obama to to some extent as well. I think that historical differences are important to consider and something that I think is quite unique in the, the United States is the way we experienced our civil rights movement in the 20th century. You know, I, I hear that, that gets brought up a lot by labor leaders or uh, different uh, activists in different countries as, as something that, uh, you know, something that can be learned from. Uh, and at the same time, countries like Australia have different struggles that we, we're not familiar with. Yeah. So. Yes, yeah, a big difference here with you, know, you guys had a civil rights movement. We really had the massive movement in the 1960s for Indigenous Australians to be considered as citizens, mm-hmm. as fully incorporated in our world people and the fact they weren't until whatever it is 1965 or 1966 is just incredible um and yeah we don't i think continue to talk about that in the way that civil rights continues to be relevant in the united states in terms of the idea of a new green deal it's got such historical resonance for the united states with the original new deal in the 1930s do most Americans learn about the New Deal in school still? Is this something that is so deeply a part of US understanding that people immediately know what a New Deal means? I wish, but wish. not okay. quite. I think that we do learn about it in school, but I don't know if it's really been internalized because the the legacy of neoliberalism has been quite strong to where uh, much of the culture is only now starting to think of what society and reality might be like outside of hyper-individualism and everything based out of incentives and market logic and, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurship. So I think that it's only really been uh, since these last couple of years when the climate crisis has come to the, the forefront of the political agenda where we're talking about what happened during the New Deal. It's, it had really been forgotten for a lot of the culture, too. But that also comes with having conversations about all of the, the ways in which the New Deal didn't live up to its promises and how, like we were, as we were speaking of, the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and other things like that had to take up for some of those uh, 
some of those inadequacies that were experienced. And so I think now with the Green New Deal, we're trying to bring the best of the New Deal with some of the new lessons that were learned into one kind of social movement. And I think that's a really interesting point because if we look, you know, the, the New Deal happened because of the Depression, but then there were having to be all the issues of dealing with World War II and then the aftermath of a global crisis. In a sense, we kind of we've learnt the lessons of how a global crisis will interfere with anyone's plans, but we're on the verge potentially again of both military crisis and most certainly environmental crisis and our economies are transforming from industrial to whatever this mythical thing called post-industrial is. Now, it appears in the United States, you know, we read here about your rust belt, you know, the fact that you used to make everything and anything under the sun and now make a lot less, but you still have a level of manufacturing that I don't think Australia could ever imagine having. So trying to balance all these factors, it would seem to me that from the outside, the idea of justice and inclusion would really need to be at the front now of any idea of a Green New Deal. Is that a fair assessment from a perspective from the outside? Absolutely. I mean, I think we're trying to envision and propose a political and policy agenda that inspires and mobilizes mass movement of productive capacity to respond to the climate crisis, but at the same time acknowledges that any economy and any industrial agenda is inherently connected and embedded in all of these other social issues. And so questions of who gets left out or who is at the forefront of this is is very, very important, which includes in the United States all of these historically marginalized communities who, after the New Deal, because of the way Many of the people in, in Roosevelt's party, the Democrats, had to make some concessions with some of the Southern Democrats who historically have been part of kind of the white supremacist worldview and switched over to the Republican Party with Nixon, excluded African-Americans and others from the construction of many of these suburban and urban you know, housing and residential areas, uh, contributed to gentrification, really, really emphasized a very strict, narrow vision of the family uh, and those kinds of forces as well. And so we're, we're really trying to articulate something that, that can bring together our capacity to build stuff yeah. with our capacity to coexist with one another in a peaceful you way. You almost, in a sense, have to get a good sort of sense of a social collectivity first to then work out, well, we've got all this talent, we've got all this competence. Now that we can think collectively as we're in this together, we're capable of so much more. Absolutely. And I think that speaks to at least what Bernie Sanders is trying to propose with, with his uh, message of not me, us. Yeah. And, and this idea that, yes, we're going to resist as much as we can, but we also have to create something. And, and that something also has to build a sense that we're better off when we try to understand one another and respect one another and, and that uh, somebody else's dignity raises mine as well. Yeah. I, I remember here in Australia that when Howard Dean was going for sort of a democratic selection to be the candidate to be, you know, for president. He seemed to be able to inspire lots of young people and it seemed to be the first really internet-savvy campaign watching from the outside where you know, the internet was coming along, mobile phones were developing. There was this ability to tap in to young people with time could have a massive impact. Was that the beginning of, in a sense, a revitalization of sort of civil action being a much stronger part of mainstream politics in America, do you think? I think so. Before, in, in the late 90s, you know, a lot of young people were organizing for things like the WTO protests 
in Seattle. And yeah, the battle in Seattle. What year was that? I think that was ninety nine. Yeah, because that's amazing. Like again, you just kind of hear glass and bricks, and there's a big mess <laughs> and a lot of violence. Yeah, and it will. You know, it was a part of the alter globalization movement, which yeah. was kind of pointing out how destructive neoliberal globalization is and was. Um, and 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 there were even discussions of organizing an Occupy Wall Street kind of thing much earlier than it actually yeah. happened. So literally prior to sort of 9-11, there was this talk of this isn't delivering. Right. So yeah. 9-11 changes everything. Yeah. 9-11 changes everything. It starts the war on terror and really just transforms American culture. You know, there was a struggle, especially with George W. Bush's election, that we were moving in kind of this... Back onto a war footing. Back into war footing. Yeah. We definitely doubled down on that after 9-11. And so that energy had to rediscover its own identity. And some of that started with Howard Dean's campaign and then kind of grew with Obama, with the election of Barack Obama, yep. and then um, solidified some more with Occupy Wall Street, and then has really kind of come together with Bernie Sanders and, and then Alexander. So now you're starting to almost get two generations where you've got the people who were perhaps first involved in their early 20s in the Howard Dean era are now at the point where they have more influence and more resources at their disposal and young people who are good to go. Yes. So you're getting the combination of beginning to be able to influence the system and young people who've got tons of energy and want to know where to direct it. Yes, and the unique thing about the moment we're living is that this energy now is being informed by policy like MMT's lens for macroeconomics and the Green New Deal agenda. So we're, we're learning as we go to be able to not just, as I've said, not just resist uh, and not just stay true to our values, but also put together a policy agenda that can produce the kind of transformational reforms that aren't just trying to fix a broken system, but trying to build a new one altogether. Yeah, because it's that, that critical thing that protesting is fine. But what are you going to build if you win? Yeah, what what happens takes the day time. after the revolution? Right? So <laughs> when did your point of real political awakening where you realized, right, I want to influence this? What time and place was that for you? Uh, I had several experiences. I mean, I, I was raised in a household that was pretty political because you know, I'm an immigrant to the United States and my father was uh, engaged in student activism and kind of left-wing activism when he was younger. Uh, so I was raised with kind of those values, but it really didn't start to take more of a concrete hold until the invasion of Iraq okay. and uh, how disillusioned I felt with what seemed to be everybody around me uh, being incredibly enthusiastic uh, to go to war, living in Texas at the time, which wow. is George W. Bush's yeah. home, hometown, um, feeling completely alienated from society in, in that kind of environment. Um, and then the disillusionment after Barack Obama started to name all of these neoliberals to very important positions uh, and, and starting to discover ex that he wasn't really articulating anything different from what we already had. And uh, so going through college, going through university, digging a little deeper, and starting to look for and seek new ways forward. And so I became really interested in things like worker cooperatives and uh, economic democracy and those kinds of, yep. of ideas at the at kind of like the local level or at the firm level or democratizing markets, things like that. And then that later, I added a macro vision to that with what MMT is proposing too. So it's kind of been an unfolding. So it's that thing of initially feeling the disillusionment of what are we doing and then going, okay, how do I build my toolkit? And it yes. takes time to build a toolkit. Y yes, and, and I mean a big part of that is like, what are we doing? But also, what what is my like, what is my purpose? Yeah, right. Um, we're also living through a time of, uh, especially in the United States, an epidemic of mental health problems, anxiety, yeah. alienation. People are not happy, even though 
our culture is obsessed with happiness. Yeah, prosperity does not naturally lead to happiness. <laughs> and, and of course, there's the old Stoic argument that, you know, if your aim is to be happy, you never will be. Right. Because happy is a consequence of meaning, purpose, sure. pride in things. You've got to, if you get your day okay, suddenly you realize you're happy. Right. And, uh, you know, we are fed a very particular understanding of happiness based more on uh, achieving wealth and power and status. And, of course, people that strive for those kinds of things their whole life and whether they achieve that or not doesn't really fulfill our need to connect in meaningful ways and live in a more just society. Um, and so many of those problems, you know, I experienced as well growing up and trying to make meaning of my life and dealing with, with my issues. I, I found ways to connect that to certain political realities that we're facing. And my, my quest for fulfillment is now very much connected to uh, social justice and, and, and uh, economic transformation. Yeah, the I and the we start to fit together very nicely. Absolutely. And you know, it's very clear in all of this, the importance of ideas and new ideas. And for most people at this conference this weekend, it's an interesting combination of some people very familiar with MMT, other people not familiar at all. Uh, two things. How did you first run into modern monetary theory? And can you tell us a little bit about the fact that the US Senate tried to ban MMT during 2019? Sure. Well, I discovered it through the internet. I had gone to a conference in 2014 called Rethinking Economics, and uh, I, I saw them on some panels, the MMTers, and I saw their logo on the brochure, and I thought it was kind of interesting. And then I didn't look back or look into it for about three, four years. Uh, and after Donald Trump was elected, I, so I, depressed it, yes, the I, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to give these guys a chance. I wonder what they're saying. And so I started to read up on, 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 you know, what they were proposing. And it made a lot of sense intuitively to me because I've always been skeptical of neoclassical and orthodox uh, economics, particularly in the way they try to naturalize economic phenomenon. Yeah. And so when I start to see that the one of the core claims of MMT is that money is this legal social relation uh, that historically has ties to um, civilizations and, and organizations of authority issuing debts and obligations as opposed to emerging from barter. Yeah. It, it, it seems just obvious. That's a head trip when you have that realization. It, it, yes, absolutely. Right. So I remember going to like some friends' houses and being like, our federal taxes aren't financing spending. And, and they're like, it, say what? And they, they thought I had joined a cult, yeah. you know, <laughs> or I'd lost my mind, you know, but then like kind of sitting down with people and really starting to explain to them really just think about it uh, the idea of currency issuers versus, versus currency users and, and then it just kind of the light bulbs go off right something something as simple as uh, as somebody's uh, debts and deficits are somebody else's assets yeah. it seems so obvious but yet most of us are that we don't think about it that way yeah. Can I ask, you get a lot more of the media coverage about MMT than we do in Australia, and that probably is still insignificant in the US landscape of the so amount media. of yeah, of so much media. You still probably don't get as much as you know as as every other kind of idea, I'm sure. But especially in Australia, it we tend not to trust the Australian advocates of MMT and a lot of uh, the media coverage that we're getting now that you know, so yourself or Stephanie is here is going to be from uh, kind of internationally are there things that you're kind of guarding yourself from saying in Australia let's say that you wouldn't say in the US or uh, just because of let's say maybe a more hostile landscape no not really I, I, I come as I are as I am wherever I go <laughs> I just say it how I, how I feel it good and, 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 and how I see it so 
yes, well, I guess within the MMT community, some people um, see things a little differently than others. And I have a very particular vision of it, given that I've, I've been influenced and, and uh, brought up in a tradition of critical theory and political economy. Yeah. Any descriptive or analytical tool that is uh, providing knowledge is never just objective and outside of power relations. And so that's always something I've, I've kind of believed. And uh, there can be a little tension sometimes with, with others who really want to emphasize that there's some objective MMG truth. Yeah, we really need to keep sight of what are the power relations we're understanding within what ideological means. And so, so from a political theory perspective, we don't ever want to forget that Foucault and Derrida should still be in the room. There we go. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you got to you got you got some agreements with that that one, David. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was hoping you would know the names. I thought he's gonna know the names. It's gonna be fine. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, sorry. Do you want to get inside? We're happy to let yeah. you go, yeah. so you can be back in on time. Okay, great. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me here. Thank, thank you pleasure. very much, Andres Benal. Uh, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. And looking forward to your speech. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.